Look together with me at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. This morning, we're going to look at verses 18 and following. It'll take us a couple of weeks to get through these two stories, probably. And um, as we do, I want to remind you again, as we do nearly every week, that uh, Matthew's Gospel is a glorious gospel. Uh, Matthew obviously was a, a tax collector. He was a, a publican. He was someone who was despised and hated by his community. And remember, just a few weeks ago, uh, he described his own conversion, that he was there at the tax collector's booth. Jesus came and said, follow me. And Matthew did what? He left it all, and he followed Jesus. A glorious, glorious story. And Matthew, in this uh, book that he is writing of, under the influence and the inspiration, direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this wonderful scripture, it's clear that Jesus is a king. That's why the first chapter describes all of his lineage, and, and that's why the wise men are discussed in, in Matthew's gospel. These kings come and bring gifts fit for a king, and that's why John is made so much of in Matthew's gospel. He's the one that comes before the king and announces the arrival of the king. And then the, the glorious time we had spending in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus describes his unique and very different kingdom. And now in these number of stories we've just seen, he describes the power that he has, his divine power. Remember, his divine power over nature as he calms the storm, his power over demons as he casts out the demons, uh, the one across the Sea of Galilee, the Gadarene demoniac. And here we're going to see his power over sickness and his power over death. What a glorious and wonderful risen Savior we serve. I want you to know, regardless of what's going on in your life or my life or the world, Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave. He sits at the throne, the right hand of the Father. And that changes everything. Let's look together. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 18. As he was telling them these things, suddenly... It's amazing how often in the... In the gospel narratives, the word suddenly appears. Is that the story of our life sometimes? We're not prepared. These things just happen quickly. It seems like life just comes at us suddenly. They never disrupt Jesus. He's never bothered by the suddenly in his life. That's for some of you, not like me. I need to be more organized. But some of you who are, who are wonderfully organized people, you make a list of everything, you have a calendar of everything, and suddenly really bothers you. I just want you to throw that in there. I need to be more bothered by suddenly. But anyway, as Jesus was telling these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Eternal God, our loving Father, we are grateful to be here this morning. What a glorious and wonderful place to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and care for you and desire to know more about you. And our hearts are drawn to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine this morning that are gathering for worship, that are seeking your leadership. And Lord, we do pray for their protection. We pray in the midst of all of this that you would be made much of and your grace would be more than abundant to those families who are disrupted and who are, who are now separated from one another. Lord, in the midst of all of this, may we be ultimately faithful to you, to love, to care for this world, 
see the brokenness in it, and as Pastor Howie said, to long for the day when all will be made right. Father, some of us in this room this morning are truly troubled. We have financial problems no one knows about. We have marital strife we're keeping to ourselves. Deeply worried about our children, or our grandchildren, or our aged parents. Some of us are dealing with anxiety and deep depression. Well, there's all kinds of issues in this world, all kinds of issues in this room, all kinds of issues among these people. So, Lord, this morning, through the power of your word, speak to us. Instruct us. Comfort us. Edify us as only you can. So we ask you to do that in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As is often the case, Matthew is rather brief about his discussions, his descriptions rather. Remember when he described his conversion, he just said, Jesus said, follow me, and I followed him. It's the other gospel writers who remind us that Matthew left everything and followed Jesus. There are other places where Matthew is brief. So, but we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to look at the Gospel of Luke because he gives a little more detail to this very important story. So the Gospel writer Luke records the same story in his Gospel. And in his Gospel, chapter 8, verse 40, you can listen to this. Because in this Gospel, he not only describes the story, but he actually names the individual in the story. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. So I want you to know there's a large crowd of people around him now. And remember, whenever Jesus was up north in the Sea of Galilee area, there were always crowds. He was always well-received up there. The disciples liked it up there. They didn't like it down in Jerusalem. But up, in, up around the Sea of Galilee, there were always lots of crowds around him. And he was very well-received there. And so there were a tremendous amount of crowds around him. And they were all expecting him. But verse 41 of Luke's gospel says this, Just then, or suddenly, just then, just out of nowhere, right? A man named Jairus came. And he was a leader of the synagogue. Now don't lose sight of that for a second. First of all, he has a name. He's a real dad. He's a real person. He's a real man. This man, he really lived, he really existed. You're a parent, imagine your child. He had a real daughter. But more even than that, he was a leader of the synagogue, and he was part of the sect or the group that really despised Jesus and all that he was teaching. He was opposed, the, the, the group that he was with was opposed to Christ and all that he was teaching, was very threatened by the popularity of Jesus and was always pushing back on that. But something happened in this man's life that changed his perspective, that made him so desperate that he ran to Jesus. And the scripture makes it clear, he didn't stand there. Listen, this is so important. He didn't stand there and say, everybody get back. I'm Jairus, I'm a leader of the synagogue. I wanna to talk to this man. He ran to Jesus, and he fell at Jesus' feet, and he worshipped him. He didn't care what his peers at the synagogue school would think. 
He didn't care what the people around him would say about him as he had sort of turned his back on all those that he connected with and all that he had been part of believing. And, and now he fell humbly. Here's a leader of the synagogue falling humbly before this, 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 this rabbi who just walks around with a crowd around him. Who, who is he? But this leader of the synagogue falls and worships him because, listen, he doesn't feel entitled to anything. We live in a culture where everybody feels like somebody owes us something. And truly understanding here that what it took for Jairus to come to the place where not only he was willing to acknowledge who Jesus is, not only was he willing to do that, but he was willing to travel and find Jesus, not in private. Nicodemus came at night, right? When I was a kid, we had a cat named Nicodemus because he left every night. But, you know, we... we <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Nicodemus came at night, sort of nobody could see him. But Jairus comes in broad daylight, and the Scripture tells us there's a crowd around Jairus. He doesn't mind. And not only does he come to see Jesus, but he just humbles himself. He collapses at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because he is highly motivated because of what's happened to his daughter. Can't tell you folks how many times that's been my story. I haven't lost a daughter. Wasn't at the place where I disagreed that Jesus was the Messiah. But isn't it amazing the times when I truly sometimes come and truly fall before the Lord and truly worship Him and truly pour my heart out to Him is not when everything's going well in my life. It's when I feel like everything's about to come undone. I think that's why the Apostle Paul, one of the reasons he says that for those of us who are in Christ, everything eventually works together for our good. Because even those things that cause us pain, even those things that cause us anxiety, even those things that cause us dread, if they cause us to run to the feet of Christ, how can that be a bad place to be? So here, Jairus runs to the very feet of Jesus. You can imagine the crowd looking at this. Here's this leader of the synagogue. He's at the feet of Jesus. He's laid on the ground and he's, he's not begging Jesus for something. He's worshiping him. He's acknowledging Jesus' divinity. Glorious and amazing picture. And then he pleaded with him to come to his house because he had a daughter who was 12 years old and she was dying. She was dead. She wasn't going to live. Anybody here ever been that desperate in your life? You will be. It's the nature of life. Oh, we can pretend it doesn't really affect us. You know, I, I, um, I, I do funerals. I mean, I, I, I have relationships with funeral homes here in Kansas City, just like my father did. And uh, I find it a real ministry to, to be with families at the point of the loss of a loved one when they have no pastor. It, it's amazing. I, I did three you know, a few a month ago, kind of right in a row, and none of these families had a pastor. So the funeral home knows me and they call me. You imagine, I, I have a hard time imagining, but I know it's true across the globe, how many people uh, come to the loss of a mother or a spouse or a child and they have no church, they have no pastors. They go to the funeral home of all places and say, who's going to conduct the service for my loved one? So what an opportunity it is, I think, for me to come and, and to share as I can with them at that point. 
it's not unusual in this life for people to go through life sort of just assuming I can avoid all the bad things. And so when I, even at a funeral, I'll be at a funeral and I'll notice, and I know some of you are off put by, by funerals. I, I, I mean, something, there's something about death that isn't right. I, I totally get that. And one of the reasons you walk into a funeral home and you see a, a funeral in a casket, you go, whoa, this is uncomfortable because death is uncomfortable. It, it is indeed uh, the, the judgment, and, and we are not made for that, and, and Jesus fixed that. So there's, there, that's good that we feel that uncomfortableness that death isn't right. But for many people, they avoid it altogether. They don't want to go to funerals. They don't want to think about death. They don't want to think about anything. They just want to do whatever they can do to continue to experience life and numb all the pain and keep it away and just be a, and, and, and we're a culture that loves experiences. We just want to have one great experience after another. We can't go out and eat anymore. We've got to have a dining experience. We can't just have a birthday party anymore. We've got to have a birthday experience. We can't go to a, on a vacation anymore. We have to have a whole experience. I know these things because I like them as well. So we all like experiences, right? Nothing wrong with enjoying this world, obviously. Do everything for the glory of God. One of my favorite John Piper quotes is, you can really enjoy God's glory with really hot Pizza Hut pizza and really cold Pepsi. And I, that's not a joke. I mean, if, if, you're truly, if you're truly worshiping the Lord and these things taste very good to you, if you understand that, you can be grateful that God has given you the ability to do that and you glorify Him even, even in that. Again, I, don't, I, I do agree that this world has things that we can enjoy. However, many people just put blinders on and just put aside and just say, I just don't want to feel the pain. So if I can get involved in illicit relationships sexually, if I can get involved in drugs or alcohol, if I can get involved in just throwing myself in my business or my hobby and just numb the pain, we think we can manage it, but we can't because eventually life is going to come to us. There's going to be a jarious moment for all of us, some of us for many of those moments. And what do we do in those moments? I mean, frankly, when your 12-year-old daughter is dying, just another cool restaurant you can go to that night isn't going to change anything. Another great cruise isn't going to take that pain away. And so many times, these great tragedies in life, as great as they are, they can indeed cause us to obliterate everything we're trusting in and seek Jesus alone. That's what Jairus did I just want you, as you leave here today, to have this picture of this father who's just, he's just, I don't care that I'm a leader of synagogue. I don't care what my peers will think. I don't care that I'm not supposed to believe Jesus is the Messiah. I know he is. And I fall down before him, and I don't care who's looking at me, I'm going to worship him. Dear saints, when, when can we finally, look, I grew up in church. You know that. I mean, literally grew up in church. My father was a pastor. I lived in the parsonage behind the church. So, I mean, I literally grew up in church. I mean, truthfully. And this was the pulpit that my dad preached behind for a quarter of a decade. And so that's all I really knew was, was really growing up in, in church. But in doing that, you know, I, I, I realized that there are many people in church that have no real passion and desire to worship Christ. They're there for a variety of other reasons. So when life comes at them and brings in something unbelievably difficult, they don't really know totally how to handle it. And so all across this globe this morning, and all across this county this morning, 
all across this room this morning, for those of us who have we not had a Jarius moment, we will. And what do we do at that moment? Where do we turn to? Oh, listen, listen, church. What a glorious thing that when Jarius fell at the feet of Jesus, Jesus was there. And he listened and he cared and he responded. What a wonderful, glorious moment. Can you imagine? I can't, really. I'm trying to. A glorious time. So, Luke, the writer, says, while he was going, so here's this, I mean, everybody's saying this. This is Jairus. He's come. He's collapsed at the feet of Jesus. He's worshiping Christ. He's pleading for his daughter who's dead. And while he's doing that, Jesus starts going to Jairus' house. So the crowds that are around him go with him. You getting the picture now? So Jesus is, is traveling. To, well, we're going to go see this. First of all, who would have ever thought Jairus would have fell at the feet of Jesus? Secondly, his daughter is dead. Jesus is going to the house. We're not missing this. So the crowds push and pull. And so you got the disciples. And you got this huge crowd. They're maneuvering and crowding. You just get this picture of this crowd, mass of humanity moving around. And all of a sudden, something else happens. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. Again, Luke is very specific about this. They weren't just keeping their distance. They were crushing in on him. You can imagine probably the disciples trying to sort of keep people back and, and not let Jesus get trampled because they were crushing in on him. In verse 43 of Luke's gospel, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years and Matthew doesn't record this part, Luke does, who spent all that she had on doctors and could not be healed by any, approached him from behind and touched the end of his robe, and instantly her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, Jesus said. I know because the power has gone out from me. Here's an interruption. Is there much more important things to do than here's the leader of the synagogue whose daughter is dead and you need to go to her house? Man, go there. But what happens? He gets interrupted on the way. Look, some of the most wonderful experiences you're going to have with the Lord and with people are if you enjoy and embrace life's interruptions. If you're able to pivot to where God is at work and join Him in it. When we go this week, if some of you go with us to Richard Blackaby's conference at Emmanuel Overland Park, you know Richard's father, Henry, for decades really influenced the church in North America with experiencing God. When we replanted this church, the very first thing we did was go through experiencing God. And the very foundational statement of experiencing God is something that will do you well for your entire life, and it's really here. You find out where God is at work around you, and you join Him in it, because He's always at work around you. People say, how are you going to reach Linwood? We're not going to reach Linwood. We're going to join God in His work already happening in Linwood. The Holy Spirit is already here. He's drawing men and women to Himself. There's all kinds of places where God is at work. Our job is not to try to figure out what to do for God and ask Him to come along and bless it. Our, God is to be, our, our desire and our heart is to be so in tune to our Lord that we see His work, we recognize His work, and with total abandon, 
without any regard for our own self, we join him in that work. And sometimes that means there's all kinds of interruptions. You know, my, my, my full-time job is to work for Southern Baptist Convention as they deal with church revitalization and church replanting across North America. And I deal daily with churches that are dying. You wonder, how can a church that has the gospel, that has the word of God, how can it set in a community that needs people and it close its doors? Oh, it happens. It happens. And it happens because they fail to be close enough to Jesus and willing to take whatever risk he asked them to take in order to move wherever he is working. I don't want to do that. I don't want to reach those people. We don't want to be part of that. This is what we want to do in church. This is what we like about church. Well, good for you. Church isn't yours. It belongs to Jesus. It's his. He bought it with his blood. Jesus has a plan for every church, including Linwood. It's not my plan. It's not your plan. It's not the pastor's plan. It's Jesus' plan. And if you'll notice in our bulletin, we have a number of pastors. And I do believe in a plurality of pastors in a church. But there's only one chief pastor, and his name is Jesus. And we listen to him. And sometimes there's going to be things that come across uh, our path in this church that we weren't planning for or expecting or even have money for. But when Jesus shows us it's time, it's an interruption, we don't resent it. We embrace it. And so here Jesus is headed to see Jairus' daughter and Jairus and this woman interrupts him and he embraces it. And he says something so strange. You know, the disciples are often, I won't say they're annoyed with Jesus, but they're sort of, I don't understand what's going on with Jesus, all right? They, they really do. And this must be almost the height of that. Because everybody's pushing in on him. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Peter goes, what do you, what do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touched you. Like, what, what, are you? what are you trying to say? And then Jesus said something, very, listen, very important. He said, the power has gone out from me. You ever think about that? I'll be honest with you, I really never thought much about it. I never thought much about that phrase. I just thought, well, he could tell someone had touched him because, you know, he felt it. But R.C. Sproul, on this text, said this. That in his divinity and his humanity, every time Jesus performed a miracle or healed, he felt something leave him. In a sense, it cost him something in his divinity and in his humanity. It wasn't like he was just walking around performing magic tricks. It's like when he heals someone, a bit of him, it just cost him something. I, 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 I'm still meditating on what that means, but it, it just emphasizes even more the love of Jesus for people. And immediately he felt the, 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 the power flow from him. And could you have two different people, more different than Jairus and the woman with the, with the hemorrhage. Now, don't lose sight of the fact, I think it's interesting that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old and she's had this hemorrhage for 12 years. So for the entire life of this young girl, this woman has had this hemorrhage. And it's not a life-threatening disease, whereas in, in, in Jairus' case, his daughter was dead. It was life or death. In her case, it wasn't a life-threatening disease, but it was a terrible, terrible condition. She was considered unclean which meant many things, not the least of which she couldn't worship with the others. She couldn't enter worship with the others. She was ostracized and pushed away with the others. Some of you here this morning, you've got crushing pain in your life, just like Jairus. Others of you may have just this ongoing agony in life. It's like this woman. 
But it doesn't matter which it is. Jesus cares about it all. And when she doesn't, and, and again, she doesn't, just like Jairus, he didn't come to Jesus and say, clear the crowds, I'm a leader of the synagogue, I need to talk to this man. Nor did this woman in some way holler at Jesus and say, hey, you need to look at me over here. Neither one of them had a sense of entitlement. Back to what I was saying about having grown up in church and having worked with dying churches. Unfortunately, dear ones, many of us feel like we are entitled to something from the church and from Jesus because, after all, we're Christians, right? Membership has its privileges, right? We should be taken care of. This is all about us. It's not all about us. It's all about Jesus. And until we realize we have no right to come to him, we have nothing to bring to God. We have nothing to add to him. There's, God is not lonely looking for fellowship from you and me. He's got all that he needs. He fellowships with the Trinity. He's completely joyful. He's completely convenient. Why in the world does he need me? Out of his love and his compassion and his own glory, he decides to love us. And here, both Jairus and this woman came to Jesus humbly and broken and without any sense of entitlement. And I just tell you this morning, that's how we all must come to Christ. Humble and broken and no sense of entitlement. No bargaining with God, right? You know, God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. As if God says, well, that's good because I didn't know how I was going to accomplish that without you. I mean, it's crazy. He doesn't need us. We are totally dependent upon him. And here as she touches, just reaches out and she's, I don't need to even talk to him. I don't need to see him in the face. I don't need, if I don't need to touch his body. If I can just get close enough to touch, again, the desperation. And we know she was desperate, first of all, just because what it would be like to be in that condition, regardless, but especially in her culture. And she'd also spent all that she had on all kinds of doctors and hadn't got any better but worse. Is that anybody in here? Anybody in here spent all that you can, all your, all your, your energy, your emotion, your, your credibility, everything, trying to find some, some way to solve the pain, the trouble, the tragedy in your life, and it's just worse. Maybe you, maybe you did dabble in illicit relationships, and for a while it felt better, but at the end, what? You were worse. Maybe you did give in to all other kinds of temptations in your life. And for a while, sin's a pleasure and it felt good. But at the end, it's worse. And listen, it always cost you everything. That was her picture. She'd spent everything she had and she was worse. There is no hope for you and for me outside of Jesus Christ. There is no hope for this world outside of Jesus Christ. So here, she reaches out and she just touches him. He says, I know the power is gone from me. And when the woman saw that she would discover it, she came trembling and fell down before him. And in the presence of all people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Wow. Instantly. Look, the problem you and I have in life is that we have a broken relationship with our creator through sin we are enemies with god by nature and nothing can fix that no amount of drugs no amount of money no amount of fame no amount of relationships nothing can fix that nothing can can make us whole except 
a true relationship with our Creator, and that can only come through one place, right? It doesn't come by reading poetry. It doesn't come by walks in the woods. It doesn't come by believing whatever you want to believe, and all paths lead to, to God. All that sounds good, but none of it's true, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. When Jesus was in the garden before his execution, he pleaded with the Father. He said, Lord, if, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the response was, there is no other way. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. So it doesn't matter where you go and how much you spend and what you do. Ultimately, your greatest need, your only need that really matters, can only be solved by Jesus. And if you'll simply come to him in humility without, without any sense of entitlement and realizing the glory that he is and the divinity that he is and the sinfulness that you and I are, and just as Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, and just as this woman with the hemorrhage of blood, you fall down before him and he lovingly fixes what you can't fix. What a beautiful story. What a glorious thing. And again, don't lose sight of the interruption of Jesus on the way. Some of the greatest experiences you and I will have is when we interrupt it. As I said a moment ago, working with dying churches, haven't been in churches all of my life, some churches don't want to be interrupted. they got a plan. They're going to work their plan. We're not going to change our plan. Jesus says, wait a minute. Here's somebody that comes along. Here's an issue. Here's a need. You've got to stop what you're doing and take time with this. Because I'm here. I'm a part of this. And one of the glorious things about the Christian life is you wake up every day and God's going to teach you something. He's going to enlighten you in something. He's going to edify you in something. Which is why you need to be part of a local church family. Because that helps us grow in Christ. It's God's desire for us to be together in a local church and care for one another and hold each other accountable as we grow with each other. That's so cool. What a great story. This woman now was cleansed. Her problem was healed instantly. And when you come to know Christ, when you repent of your sins, you are instantly justified. Your sanctification, clean yourself, I mean, getting... I mean, that's an ongoing process till we get to heaven. I mean, none of us are righteous here on earth. We, we're righteous because of what Jesus has done. We battle sin. That's just like our brother Jim confessed his own sin. That's why we have prayer of confession. We confess. And again, confession is not something to run from. It's something to run to. Because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you are as saved as you'll ever be once you return to Christ and ask him to save you in forgiveness. He will, and he will give you a new heart. And instantly, just as she was instantly healed, you are instantly created a new heart. You are regenerate. And then we come together as the body of Christ, and we help each other, and we disciple one another, and we grow in Jesus. Twelve years. Some of you, it's a, it's a major crisis you're facing in your life. Others of you, it's a chronic problem you're facing in your life. But the answer is the same, isn't it? Leave everything else behind. Quit spending money, time, and energy on things that don't work. Quit listening to the world that tells you this is how you solve it. And simply turn to Jesus. And you will find him to be loving and caring and sensitive to you and responsive to you. The psalmist David writes these words. We live in, as I said, in a very, very entitled society. I struggle with returning phone calls and emails. It's not a new thing with me. I've struggled with it all my life. I shouldn't say I struggle with it. Back when Jill and I were dating, I returned her call instantly. So, it's, you know, you call who you want, right? Amen? 
I just struggle with focus and discipline in my life. That's the biggest struggle that I have, and Satan knows it. But nonetheless, having the job that I have and serving across North America with all these thousands of churches and, and um, Facebook and Twitter and email and my phone number is out there for everybody. You know, there are a lot of times someone will message me on Facebook, and I, it's hard to always follow those Facebook messages, you know. It's, it's another story, whatever. But there's so many ways of communication now. And every now and then, I'll, I'll, I'll miss one. I won't respond to someone. I don't mean for weeks. I mean like a day or two, right? And they email me, and they go, did you get my email? Like, yeah, I guess, but it's only been a day or two, you know? I mean, I know this instant, sort of we live in a world where we want to get an instant response, an instant answer. We feel like we, we haven't, we're entitled to that. I just want you to be gracious with people. That, that, that's what I... We, we, you know, back in the day, I mean, come on. I mean, if you wanted to talk to somebody, you had to, you had to write a letter, maybe type it, put a stamp on it, go to the mailbox, it'd take a few days to get there. We're, we're done with that. Now, if I text you, you've got to text me back right away. I get that because I feel the same way. When I text you, I want you to text me back right away. When I send an email to some of my team, I want them to email me back right away. I get that. So that whole culture has created this sort of instant gratification. We want it quick. I mean, it's in your car, for goodness sakes. So all you got to say is, hey, Siri, how far to get to this restaurant? And it tells you. You don't need to think about it anymore. So we sort of just feel totally entitled to things. And it does us very well to be reminded that when it comes to God eternal to the holy, holy, holy one who created this whole universe and spoke it into being. We're not entitled to anything except hell, except wrath, because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And everything we've been given is of nothing but God's amazing love and blessing upon us. And we wake up every morning and acknowledge his mercy is new upon us all day long. Totally aware of that. And if we live, listen, when you live like that and you realize how generous God is to you, then, as I said, the biggest problem in humanity is our broken relationship with our Creator. We can't fix our relationship horizontally till we fix it vertically. You can't fix the relationships with your spouse and your children and your co-workers in this culture until first you're right with God. Why? Because when you're right with God and you truly understand who He is and who you are, you realize you've been given more than you could ever imagine. You've been dealt more generously with than anybody in the world. And if you've been dealt that generously with, you should be the most generous people in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace. Because every single day, if you're a child of God, listen to me. If you're a regenerate child of God, you go to bed saved, you wake up saved. Is that anything you've done? Absolutely not. It's because of the nail scars hands of Jesus. It's because he took your punishment for you. It's because he did something you couldn't do. He created a new heart in you. He raised Jairus, his daughter. He healed her issue of blood. He solved your sin problem. He defeated sin in the grave for you. And he didn't have to do that. And we're not entitled to it. And that should make us so grateful. That should make us so grateful that we're patient with one another. We're kind to one another. We're generous to one another. We love our community because we've been so loved by God. Listen, it's when Christians believe, you know, I'm a little better than everybody else. I should have more. I'm giving up more than anybody else. Why does God not do this for me? If you ever think, why does God not do this for me? 
I don't think the Holy Spirit put that thought in your mind. The psalmist David writes these words in Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. Who am I, Lord God? What is my house that have you brought me this far? What have you done so far? What was the little thing to you, O Lord? For you have spoken about your servant's house in a distant future. And this is a revelation for mankind. This is why you are great, O Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God beside you. As we have all heard and confirmed. And who is like your people Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem the people for himself. To make a name for himself. To form them a great and awesome acts. Now, Lord God, fulfill your promise forever. Do as you have promised so that your name will be exalted forever. Lord God, you are God. Your words are true, and you have promised good things to your servant. Who am I, O oh Lord? Who am I? If we'll wake up every morning and say, Who am I? God would do all these great things for me. That's the place to begin. That's the foundation for a solid church. That's a foundation for a solid marriage. That's a foundation to be a solid parent or child. That's a foundation for everything, to realize who God is and who we are. And then to realize He loves us. He hears us. When we pray, He listens. And when we plead with Him, He responds. For Jarius... As we'll look next week, he raised that little girl from death to life. For the woman with the issue of blood, he healed her body. For those of us who have repented of our sin, he's taken care of all of that for us. What a glorious Savior we serve. And we must not keep that message to ourselves. We must be passionate to share it with the lost and dying community all around us because Jesus is the true hope of the world no matter how broken or how desperate it truly is and he is the hope for you and he's the hope for me and he loves us father how I thank you that you love us you expressed your love for us by coming and leaving the throne of heaven and wrapping yourself in human flesh and living on this earth the perfect sinless life and then dying a substitutionary death taking upon yourself the wrath of God for all who would be redeemed, including me. And you prepared a place for me in heaven, and one day you're going to come again and receive me, that where I am you're going to be also. What a glorious fact. I'm not entitled to any of it, but I'm a gracious recipient of it. Lord, I know there are some in here today whose hearts are crushed just like Jairus. They have nowhere to turn. They're frightened. They're afraid. May they run to you, worship you, fall down before you, knowing you'll hear them. Others, Father, are dealing with chronic issues in their life, long-term issues. Again, may they do the same thing. May they seek your face. May they seek your love. May they reach out to you, knowing that you will never turn them away. You will always hear them. God, forgive us when we have this sense of entitlement, that we're owed something. We're not owed anything. It's all an amazing gift beyond anything we could comprehend. And it just keeps giving. Your grace just keeps giving. It never runs out. Every day it's new. What a wonderful, wonderful picture. 
there's one here who's never responded to you in faith, Lord. Open their eyes. Draw them to you in salvation even at this moment. Make them aware of their need for you. Lord, may they reach out to you even in their voice right now, even silently, and acknowledge, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. And then, Father, give them the courage to reach out to one of us as pastors. Let us talk to them, share God's word with them, how they can know that they are redeemed. Oh, Father, how I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.